am Sarah Ruffi, the Woman Warrior Lawyer, and today it is my pleasure to introduce Trey Turner. Trey, briefly introduce yourself. Awesome. Thanks for having me on, Sarah. Uh, my name's Trey. I'm a member of an acoustic pop singer-songwriter duo called The Icarus Account that I have with my twin brother, Ty. We've been a band making music full-time for a little over a decade now, and um, that's been a really fun journey and an interesting way to become an adult uh, by traveling around the country, sleeping on people's couches and whatever else that entails. Um, on top of that, I have a lovely wife named Kelsey. We've been married for also about 10 years, and we've got a couple kiddos as well. And I'm sure I'll talk more about that as we get into this. I'm sure we will. So did you always know that you wanted to be a mu musician? So that's interesting. Like, yes and no. I think my twin brother, Ty, I have to owe a lot of that towards because he was definitely from early, early on, like even middle school, I think kind of knew that he wanted to play music forever and didn't want to ever have a real job. And I was a little more of kind of, I was a little more nerdy, I guess, growing up. I did well in school. So I always kind of wanted to play music, but assumed that I would end up with a real job at some point and even went to college initially uh, to either go into engineering or medicine was kind of what I was thinking. You know, I was a chem major initially, and then uh, about a year and a half into college, switched to be a music major. And then that was, that was the beginning of the end where you know, once, once I was majoring in music, it was like, I'm not going to make any money anyway. So I might as well just go full all into music, you know, so. So as twins, were you guys always kind of joined at the hip that it was just a natural progression to become a duo in the music world? A little bit of both. We, I mean, we're fraternal and while we're very close, we also definitely had individual lives and even went to different schools for um, high school, which was kind of fun because I was definitely the more introverted twin. And that really allowed me to kind of break out a little bit and kind of have my own friends and social setting and all that kind of stuff. Um, but we were always, like I said, we were always really close. We always played music together. Um, we started playing music in middle Well, we started way back when playing violin and piano when we were little kids, but then we played a lot together in middle school when we started playing guitar. Um, and played in the church band together all through high school and stuff. So we were kind of like separate, but then had a lot of the same stuff going on at the same time. And then as we got older, late high school, early college, we realized how hard it was to keep a band together and have other people that we had to depend on to practice and um, realize that the two of us would always be ready to jam <laughs> out. And so, um, yeah, I, I, I think we we quickly cut everybody else out of the equation, but we always kind of kept the, the two of us in there and we've somehow made that work now throughout a lot of life changes between me getting married, him getting married, us living in, in separate states at one point. Now we live about two and a half, three hours apart. I've got kids. He doesn't have kids. So there's definitely been some differences, but um, we always just had a natural onstage chemistry and, you know, just loved working together musically. So um i don't think there was ever too much question that we would not be making music together but um i don't know that you know we we definitely there were other people involved at one point and then we cut them out and it was just the two of us you know so we stuck together 
So what was the highest number of members you had in a band? Um, officially only three ever. <laughs> it was just me and my brother, Ty, and then we had a drummer. Um, but <clears throat> throughout the course of a few different attempted jamming sessions and stuff, I mean, we, we would have, you know, we had a, a keyboard player in there and, um, an extra bass player. And then Ty would play guitar instead of bass and we kind of move things around. So, you know, we, we've done stuff with as many as like five or six members. Um, but as an official band, we only ever had us and one other person. So what were, for any aspiring musicians, including my son who hooked us up, Yes. what were some of the, the biggest challenges or the biggest learning experiences you had while you were trying to put a band together and you had people coming and going and realizing that it was you and Ty that were the, the constants. Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it depends a little bit on where you're at in the process and in the development. Um, and so at the beginning, you know, for us was in high school, you know, it was more of just, Hey, do we have somebody who either has a car or has a parent that's willing to drive them to, you know, to, to practice with us, you know? And then as you get a little bit older and it starts to be more career oriented, there's a lot more complicated questions like, are we making enough money for everybody to be in the band? You know, does this person need to get paid? Do I need to get paid? You know, are we all working extra jobs? You know, how is that all working out? And, um, and then from the actual band decision making process to there's, you know, does, is this a good fit musically? Um, are we all on the same page with what musical direction we're going in? How many shows we want to play? What type of shows we want to play? Um, are we willing to travel for shows? How much do we need to get paid to be willing to travel for shows? You know, all that kind of stuff. So, um, there's a lot of decision making <laughs> that goes into it. I, I think the hardest part, I definitely to me, you know, it felt like in high school, it was very hard to be like, Oh, can this kid, does this kid have a car to drive to practice with us? Like that felt like a difficult thing that was <laughs> not, you know, it was way harder when we we're, you know, 21 year old college dropouts being like, Hey, are we going to be able to pay rent next month? Like, is that, a th you know, it's like, is this a good idea? You know, they're like, are we going to have gas money to get to the next show? And we just booked an entire, you know, nationwide tour. And like, we don't know if we're going to be able to pay to get to the next place. Um, so those, those decisions are a little more serious. I think it's all perspective, right? Right. Exactly. <laughs> so where did you guys grow up? Uh, Florida. We grew up in Fort Myers, Florida. And currently we both live in Florida. Now I live in Melbourne on the East coast of Florida. And then he lives over in Sarasota, um, about an hour ish North of Fort Myers. So we bounced around a bit here and there in between, but both ended up back in Florida. Okay. Now you don't really get a whole lot farther on the spectrum than engineering or medicine and music. How did you make the, the ultimate decision that I'm just going for the, the starving artist from the promise of a big paycheck? Right. Yeah. Um, I think I have to give Ty a lot of credit for that, or maybe blame is a better word, but, um, <laughs> you know, he so just has such a drive and a passion to pursue music as a career. And I always loved music and I think I was maybe afraid to let myself dream 
sometimes growing up. And so, you know, I went to college because that's just what you're supposed to do after high school, you know? And, um, I think that throughout college, I transitioned a little bit more from, oh, music is just this hobby that was fun. That was a dream. That's never going to happen to, oh man, maybe this is a possibility. And, And one thing that really helped me was that I started taking some music classes, um, at school with the intention of minoring in music. And then the more that I got into the music program at school, I went to a small school called Stetson University. And one of the reasons I went there was because they had a good music school, but they also had, you know, some of the other stuff, but I wasn't locked into a program from the start. Whereas, as you probably know, with having kids that are around college age, a lot of places, especially in the competitive schools, they kind of want you to know from day one exactly what you're doing. And, and, you know, I was accepted into like the University of Miami's engineering program. And I remember visiting there and I'd asked them about, you know, potentially minoring in music or doing some of that stuff. And I remember the director of their program being like, well, you won't have time to do that. You're just all engineering from day one. And, and that kind of really turned me off because I, I wanted to, you know, well, I thought and assumed that I would go into a real uh academic field i also still wanted to have music be a part of my life and so that was partly why i chose sets and then once i was there and like i said started taking music classes um i just number one didn't realize how much i would enjoy actually studying music from like a classical and academic perspective um but number two realized that there was this way of looking at music beyond a hobby but it was also still fun and I feel like I really learned a lot about being a professional within music from my guitar instructor um, at Stetson. And he just, he really taught me a lot about what it meant to be a musician, but also be a professional and just the way that you practice and the way that you take things seriously and the way that you set your daily schedule. And, you know, it's not just, oh, well, every now and then I pick up my guitar when I feel like playing, but it's like, no, you actually have scheduled practice time. And like, this is how you get better. And this is how you um, treat it like a career to where you can actually, you know, make money off of it and, and you know, actually go somewhere with it. And um, so that kind of started opening my eyes to possibilities. And then um, st- studying music in college was a lot different than really the musical career that I wanted to pursue. And so that was also kind of a process starting to understand that. And by my junior year of college, I kind of understood that. And we had, we had started a band that was an acoustic duo our freshman year. And then by junior year, we had gotten like one really decent quality. I would like to say good, but it was really just decent Um, quality record recorded. And we had started to, gain a little bit of popularity online using some social media networking. And at that point, I felt like we had enough there to take a leap of faith, jump, whatever you want to call it, to try and make a career work off of being, you know, pop music or what, or indie singer songwriter, you know, whatever you want to call our genre, but basically not just the classical music that I was studying in school. Um, and uh, it's a much less defined career path because it's kind of just, well, how big is your fan base and how do you grow your fan base and what songs are you writing versus like, hey, I have this classical music degree and I can, you know, 
apply for a job to teach classical music at a high school or a college or something like that. Um, so it's a lot less defined, but we were young enough and dumb enough to think that it was possible. And so we, we dropped out of school and luckily our parents weren't like that angry with us and um, kind of went from there. And, and I think, you know, with me, it was, you know, back to your initial question. So this is like a huge ramble just to answer the question of, you know, how it went good. from career to music, but really it, it kind of, what I realized was that I could always go back to school and I had kind of this brief moment in time for this opportunity um, where something organic was happening with our music that I felt like we could go somewhere with it. And if it didn't work out, I could go back to school. And then I also kind of liked the potential security of knowing that if I did go back to school, I probably would go back into a more academic field and not necessarily be, you know, be doing music and some of the other stuff, you know, but it would be more specified of like, Hey, I tried music the way I wanted to do it. It didn't work out. Now I'm going back for a real job, so to speak, <laughs> you know, and if I never went back, then, you know, great. If you never went back, then it meant that the first step was a success, right? Right. Exactly. So, and your little ramble gave me so much food for conversation or further questions. One of them, you talked about your guitar teacher or instructor in college. Mm -hmm. Was he a mentor to help you kind of get to the point where, or to go from this isn't going to work to maybe it is possible that I can have a career in music? I think so. Um, I, I don't know. I don't think it was um, like a formal, oh, he's my mentor or anything. Oh, like it's that. never but, you formal. Know, <laughs> well, yeah, it, no, but, but, it, doesn't but it was, you know, he, so he was just the guitar instructor. I mean, our guitar program at the school is really small. We had, you know, anywhere from 10 to 15 guitar majors at any time during the semesters that I was there. And so he was just the one that ran everything and he was a phenomenal classical guitarist himself. And was a great instructor and all that, but, um, I feel like he just went kind of a, you know, and not necessarily with any intention, but just because of who he was as a person, I think that he was just very relatable and, um, really able to, um, just teach you more than just guitar. And, um, so I think he just did that naturally. And I think some people maybe wouldn't have, that wouldn't have meant as much to them or they maybe wouldn't have picked up on it as much because they didn't necessarily need it or want anything more than just to learn guitar. But I think for me and just the type of person I am and where I was in life at the time, it did mean a lot to me. And, um, and so I, you know, a lot of those little, a lot of it was just comments that he would make almost in passing or things that he would talk about. Well, early in my career, this is something that I did. And, what, like, so I guess the best example is um, when I changed my major from chemistry to guitar, you know, I had a quick conversation with him about it and um, said something along the lines of, you know, oh, well, I've got all these chemistry credits, so I'll probably keep chemistry as a minor and then I'll have a backup plan if I need it or something. And he started laughing. He said, yeah, I remember when I, you know, first went into music as a career and a lot of people the whole, told me to have a backup plan and I just told them all to go to hell. And I was like, <laughs> oh, okay. And I was like, what do you mean? And he's like, well, you know, it's like music is just so competitive and, you know, so many people want to be in this field. And if you have a backup plan, 
you know, within two or three or four years, you'll just end up going with your backup plan. And you just, if you really want to be successful in music, you just have to be committed to being successful in music. And, um, that really stuck out to me. That was like, Oh, wow. Like, okay. <laughs> and that's, I guess that's, it's a mindset, you know, I mean, you know, really it's a competitive industry, like you said. And, um, I mean, just like professional sports or something, you know, I mean, it's, it's a lot of people want to do it, but not everybody can. And it's not that they necessarily don't have the ability, but that mindset is also very important. And that was just one of those moments. Um, there was a huge teaching moment for me from him. I think the mindset, just like a lot of things, mindset is 98%, if yeah. not a hundred. Right. And I know that that little blurb is going to be Tony's favorite part of this whole thing. Because as a 19 year old, he wants to go into music and he's like, there is no backup plan, mom. Right. right. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> right. Well, it's, it's, there's that very fine line between, you know, dumb and reckless and <laughs> passion, you know, and success, you know, and, you know, and I think that there's a lot of, for most very successful people, we only see in the you know, their public life is only when they hit the top of the mountain, but we don't see that whole climb. Don't see the work and the, the dedication and the struggle right. and the win, the small wins and the one step forward, three back. Right. right. But all of those steps make us who we are. Right. And one of the things that we always talk about in our house is when the student is ready, the teacher will appear. Okay. And I think your professor's comment about no backup plan, or I remember this, when we find people that give us those nuggets, mm -hmm. it's because they're parked in our path when they're supposed to be there right? to help Absolutely. move us to someplace else. Absolutely. So do you and your brother have a, like a manager for your band? And if so, when did you find one or what have you done to manage your careers? Yeah, great question. Um, we don't have one currently. We have in the past. And I think that what re we realized when we had one um, was a couple of things. Number one, we probably weren't as big as we thought we were and didn't necessarily need one. <laughs> um, and uh, number two, we also realized that you you're always going to work the hardest for yourself you know right and your dreams are the most real to you not necessarily to other people and what we found was and it wasn't necessarily that our manager wasn't doing a good job as much as it he was kind of a new we, we were a baby band at the time and he was a baby manager at the time and so it was kind of us all learning together he was learning how to manage a band he was really wanting to get into you know, artist management, and we were starting to get to the point where we were like, maybe this would be a helpful thing. Because um, we're drowning a little bit in some of the day to day stuff. And um, what we found was that it actually, in a way, kind of just slowed us down, because we just had one more person that we had to loop in to every conversation. And for every decision that we had to make, you know, we were running it by someone else. And if he just wasn't picking up his phone that day or wasn't responding fast enough, it would just um, cost us time. And even, the, you know, then there would be other times where he would say, oh, well, I think I can get you on, you know, 
two weeks of this tour with these three bands. So block these dates off and then we block them off. And then we'd be waiting to hear back, waiting to hear back, waiting to hear back and nothing would come of it. And then we get annoyed that we've got now two weeks at home sitting on a couch instead of being out on the road making money that we could have been, we could have booked something during that time. Um, and so, you know, maybe part of it was he, you know, like I said, he was a baby manager. He didn't really have a ton of connections at the time, which was part of the appeal to us was we thought that that could be a good fit that we would kind of grow together. And, you know, he wasn't necessarily going to charge us right away until we all kind of grew into our roles. Um, but part of the downside of that was he didn't have a ton of connections. So I think a lot of, while he had a lot of ideas and promise of potential, there wasn't a whole lot of uh results and so we kind of moved on from that and then there was another stage in our career where we ended up working pretty hands-on with a music attorney that was a little more active than just a typical music attorney of just you know send me contracts and um agreements when you have them and i'll review them and he was a little more active on hey i have all these connections because i've done deals with warner republic and island and def jam and you know all these different labels and different managers and stuff so he he really liked the personal aspect of the job and not just the paperwork aspect of it so he took on a little more active role in like actually pitching bands and helping facilitate some of the deals as opposed to just doing the paperwork on the back end of the deals so we worked with him a little bit uh i want to say for maybe a year or two and we still have a really good relationship with him, but kind of let him pitch us around a little bit um, with some mixed results. And then once once we kind of did the cycle with him and didn't really get anything to stick, um, then we kind of mutually parted ways because it didn't really make sense to keep paying him for his time or for him to keep wasting his time when he'd already kind of sent us to his contacts, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and then outside of that, we've just felt like for the most part, it was something that we could handle. I mean, unless it, I guess what we realized from those two experiences was that unless we had somebody that had way bigger connections than what we had, if it was just because we were too lazy to, you know, update our website or something like that, you know, it's like we could just do that ourselves or, you know, order new merchandise or something, you know, it's like we, we could figure that out. You know, we can, you know, once if we were treating this like a full-time job, like we should be, you know, we don't need to be paying someone else to do those little daily activities, if that makes sense. So it does. that's kind of where we've ended up with management. Um, there are specific nuances of the music industry where we have, like we have a college booking agent um, that specifically facilitates anything that we do in the college market. Um, so that kind of takes that side of it. Um, and there's other things that, um, like we've had other booking agents at times. So again, it's not like a manager, but it is outsourcing some specific activities to other people. Um, and so that's kind of what we've settled into, like what works best for us is just outsourcing certain things of people that have connections and specific niches that work really well. Um, but then just the day in and day out of keeping the business of the band afloat, we just do ourselves. Well, it's kind of, um, I talk about that being leverage. How do you leverage yourself? Yeah. You can outsource and hire people to do the things that they do best and right. take it off of your plate and park it onto theirs because they are better equipped to do it than you are. 
right that's what they do and that frees up you frees you up to do what you do and that that just makes good business sense yes so have either of you you or ty like taken any business courses or studied done any reading studying on running a business and operating your band as a business um not formally i think we've both as we've gotten older done more in our own personal lives as we've kind of started to figure out like hey you know we're about to be 30 like what do we you know how are we, <laughs> we gotta retire at some point or you know what does retirement look like or what is it you know it's like you take just a little bit of a more business like approach to your life in general and so you know with different things like investing or you know i've kind of gotten a little bit into real estate investing and things like that and so that i think even more so than the band stuff has taken both of us into little like business worlds and there's so many good resources on you know free resources online with podcasts and books and things like that to where i think we've each gotten a little bit of um business knowledge in those ways and then we've been able to take that and turn around and apply it back into the band but we've never really done like any formal business training or really thought formally about how do we treat the band as a business? I think it's just kind of something we've always done and kind of learned to grow. Well, now in saying that Ty still wakes up at noon every day and, you know, stays up until, you know, God knows what hour. And, you know, I, you know, I don't know. He, he, his life is uh, far more glamorous as a musician than mine is. I'll I'll say that. (laughs) Well, let me see. I'm pretty sure you told me before we started that may have something to do with the fact that he has no kids and you have kids. That, that's so a big part of it. Once yeah. you become a parent, all of a sudden we kind of lose our identity and ultimate control of our life because our lives are now run by little people. Exactly. 100%. Smaller versions of ourselves. Yes. So how old are your kids? Yes. Yeah, so I've got two kids. Um, they're three and a half and one and a half. Uh, the oldest is Holden. He's a boy, three and a half. And then Arden is my little sweet angel girl, and she's about one and a half. And then we've got one more on the way. So, and then the fun begins. Yeah. So, three and a half and one and a half. And when is baby number three due? In December. So, yeah, if you, we're about halfway there. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Our our first three were three within one three years and a few days okay so i can relate to your you know ours were 18 months 18 months and then 30 months so yeah it's a whole new world once you run out of enough hands to have one in each yeah see i don't like you telling me that because i was i was of the mindset that going from zero to one would be the hardest and then one to two would be a little less hard and then two to three would be a little less hard but you're um, telling me two to three is like a whole nother challenge. zero to one was the hardest okay because you had well speaking from my personal experience i had no idea what i was in for right and the amount of sleep deprivation that went with it yes and how demanding they can be and of course 
you know my oldest and he hasn't changed much in 19 <laughs> years. And then one to two, it was a challenge just because it was no longer a one-on-one. Right. Two to three, especially when they're three years between number one and number three. Right. We had three in diapers all at the same time. Oh, wow. And I think the easiest transition for us was three to four. Okay. Because we were already outnumbered. Right. And we knew how to deal with being outnumbered. Right. You, your mindset had already been committed to chaos. You were already like, we're just, our world is chaos. It's gone. It, that's it. Yeah. <laughs> well, so, like we, we have, I, I'm embarrassed to say this, but we have an old, dirty, ratty mattress in the middle of our living room that just stays there all the time. So my kids can just do gymnastics in the middle of the house whenever they want. So that's how committed to the chaos we are. <laughs> I was going to say, you say that like it's a bad thing. I No, I, I, it's a great thing. I think just that's an awesome thing. You have to explain why you have an old mattress in the middle of your living room. Yeah, but I'm guessing around the mattress is probably kids stuff anyway. Yeah. Because if you're a cool enough parents to have a mattress in the middle of the living room, that also tells me that you aren't OCD about making sure that all their toys are picked up and put where they belong. No. Well, we've got our system is we try and keep the main common areas clean, at least at the end of the day, like get all the toys out. But then the kids room is just a giant storage unit of toys is what that is. That might be changing. <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> You're scaring me. <laughs> Nah, it's all good. And especially if, you know, we have all boys, but the boys have all been good about welcoming the next one into the tribe. Yeah. And I'm not holding in an Arden close. Are they good friends? They are. Yeah. And it, it, you know, luckily she is very tough because it took a little while for him to learn how to be gentle with the baby and with new. And he's, he's definitely a little bit of a rough and tumble kid, but now she's kind of turned into that as well, but she keeps up with him really well. And now, now that she's one and a half and can really run around with him and, you know, interact it's now it's now is where it's really fun. Cause they'll go, you know, he'll ask her, I'll be like, do you want to come in, in my room with me? You know, and they'll play and all that stuff. And you don't have to be quite so afraid that he's going to, killer or something you know because she's not so little and fragile you know well even when they're little and we think that they're fragile they are way tougher than we ever give them credit for that's true and our third he didn't have to do anything he didn't have to learn how to crawl or walk or talk um because we would park him on the floor and the two older ones would come wherever he was right okay and he would try to talk And we, my husband and I would try to ask, figure out what he was trying to say. Uh And the other two would be like, mom, this is what he wants. Right. So he didn't have to talk either. Oh man. So if your two older ones are good little buddies and they're good helpers, don't be surprised if number three really doesn't have to do anything. Okay. (laughs) Because they're going to do it for him or her. That would be fun. (laughs) And of course, having boys, they're all rough and tumble. So I I don't know what it's like having girls because the only one in our house is me. Yeah. 
well, it's, it's it's been fun having one of each. So we'll see. The third one will be the tiebreaker. So we'll see if we end up being a girl house primarily or a boy house primarily. Well, how many siblings do you have? I know you have one brother. I have actually three brothers and five sisters. So nine. So you come from chaos. Yes. Where do you and Ty fall in the lineup? Uh, we're number two and three. So we have one older sister, then the two of us as twins, and then everybody else. So you guys are on the top of the food chain. Yeah. Sort of. Sort of, yeah. <laughs> well, I was kind of always on the bottom because Ty was bigger than me growing up. So. And is he older? Yes, he was born first. Yeah. By how much? How much? I my parents say 10 minutes, but I think that's kind of like my dad's lazy way of not remembering and just be like, ah, about 10 minutes, you know? And I have friends who are twins and the one will make sure to point out that he is older by two minutes. Oh, okay. Very specific. So yes, incredibly. Cause he's the big brother. Yeah. And I think they're out of a family of seven, Okay. but they're the babies. So the oh. older one didn't want to be the baby right 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 that's funny so i i get it um i understand that there is a entertaining story about you proposing to kelsey oh man how'd you find that out my son told me and in fact he wrote a note ask him about the proposal oh my gosh i want to did i tell him this or did you just find it google i my think name over the internet i'm not sure if you i yeah I don't know. So, okay. Yeah. So this is pretty crazy. I, um, I'm not very good at planning sometimes, but I was trying to plan this well, but because I'm not an experienced planner, it didn't really, I don't know. Anyway. So I had this great idea. My, my wife had just accepted her first job up in Brooklyn, New York. And, um, we'd been dating for, four-ish years we started dating early early college so um it was kind of you know it was the right time i wanted to propose and so i was going up to help her move into her first apartment and thought you know i'll propose while we're in new york together we had gone up and i had gone up with her and visited when she was applying for jobs and we just really loved a lot of new york and you know our favorite thing that we did the whole time we were there was we'd walked across the brooklyn bridge and you just have this great view of you know lower manhattan on one side and brooklyn on the other side and the bridge itself is just such an iconic you know piece of architecture and history and construction and all that and so i had the ring and i knew that she had no clue that i was going to propose because she, she was actually kind of mad at me I, I know I could tell she never told me this, but I could tell that she was mad at me that I hadn't proposed like before she moved because she was you know, like <laughs> thinking, I, I think she was starting to feel a little insecure that she was moving and we weren't engaged and like what was going to happen and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, so <clears throat> I wanted it to be a surprise. So I had the ring and it, of course they give it to you in this like giant jewelry box, you know, the size of like a, you know, piece of toilet paper or something, you know, like a roll of toilet paper. I mean, it's just gigantic. And, you know, being a musician, I wear these super tight emo jeans that nobody should ever wear, but I don't know. I just do. <laughs> and so there was no way that I could put this ring box in my pockets without her seeing this giant lump in my pockets and asking questions. And I'm a terrible liar on top of that. And so I knew she'd get it out of me. So I wanted 
our plan was to walk to have dinner in Manhattan and we were going to walk over the Brooklyn Bridge because her apartment that she was getting was pretty close to the base of the Brooklyn Bridge on the Brooklyn side. So we're going to walk over to Manhattan and, you know, when we were going to get halfway across at one of the lookout spots, I was going to, you know, drop down and propose and all that stuff. Well, first I screwed it up because we started walking up the bridge and she was in a hurry because we were like potentially running a little bit late for our dinner reservation, which we weren't, but she's always in a hurry. And then I was like super nervous. And I just remember I ended up like, there's basically two lookout spots at the Brooklyn bridge. And I didn't realize that at the time I thought there was only one. (laughs) So I kind of missed the first one because she was like, I kept on waiting for her to turn around and not be looking before I went and grabbed the ring. And then, but she never stopped kind of being close. Like I couldn't let her, like, I kept on trying to get her to look at the scenery and she, she wouldn't. She was on a mission. Yeah, she was on a mission. So then we got like halfway, you know, a little bit further past that. And I was like, okay, well now, you know, I'm going to ruin the moment. So then I just, you know, pulled the old, like, oh, I had to tie my shoe. Like I'll catch up with you trick or something stupid like that. And then I started to get the ring out of my pocket and it kind of got stuck as I was getting it out. And it just like flipped right out of my hand in my pocket and on the walkway of the brooklyn bridge it's not completely sealed it's just wooden slats like you know a dock or something and so there's plenty of room for a little ring to just go right through so of course it that's what happened it just goes ting 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 boom and just fell right through the walkway you know and so i'm just like mortified you know she turns around she heard something and and you know so she turns around to see me like on all fours you know staring at the bottom of the walkway and asked me you know did you drop something what happened you know and i'm like you know ghost she said my face was ghost white and i think i had some clever pickup line of like i just dropped our engagement ring off the brooklyn bridge will you marry me or something and she thought I was joking and then, but then it was like the more she thought about the look on my face, <laughs> realized that I definitely wasn't joking. And then, you know, then we had this like awful moment of, are we excited? Should we be celebrating? Are we just like devastated? Are we actually engaged? Are we not engaged? <laughs> like, you know, did, did I actually ask the question? Are you saying yes? And it was really confusing. And then we started, you know, just kind of going into panic mode. And then long story short, I know I've already made it long, but what ended up happening is they were doing a big, massive construction project on the bridge. And so they had a bunch of shielding underneath the bridge, luckily right at the place that I had stopped to try and pull off this proposal. And so the ring had landed on one of these construction platforms, which we didn't know if that was the case or not. And we had no idea how to potentially get down there to look, but we basically spent the next 48 hours calling, emailing any number or anything that we could find online. You know, first, I think we spent that entire night. I think we're out till like midnight trying to find somebody. Of course, there were no construction workers actually working at the time. Of course. So we were walking up, you know, pacing up and down the bridge for five hours, trying to find somebody that could potentially, you know, go look for us or whatever. And then, um, finally gave up that night, ended up making a bunch of phone calls, emails, everything else. And I think that ultimately I ended up emailing like information at brooklynbridgeconstruction.gov or something like that and got a response literally within an hour of sending an email to that address that was like, oh, hey, I'm, I can't even remember the woman's name now. 
but she was basically the exactly the person that we need to get a hold of somehow it was like oh i'll send somebody to look down there tomorrow and um within you know i think i got i had then sorry i'm i'm all over the place now it's it's probably been it's been <laughs> 11 12 years since it this happened and now it's probably been it's probably been eight years since i've had to tell this story oh, sorry or no it's it's okay it's like my worst nightmare but um <laughs> yeah but it's also a huge miracle i believe it, yeah it is so anyways they ended up finding the ring and i i had gone at this point we were doing a recording project in indiana so i had then as a total just awful move screwed up our engagement, then left the next day to go to Indiana to record. And then, you know, my poor now fiance was, you know, going through all this stress, trying to move in, trying to start a new job, <clears throat> whatever. So I remember getting a call from her two days later at like seven o'clock in the morning or something. And they had, you know, they'd already found the ring that morning. They'd gone down first thing that morning and found it. And, you know, she was all excited. And so, somewhere i think that what happened to make it you know this why it ended up becoming kind of a big news story is that one of our strategies to potentially get the ring back was to try and alert like a newspaper that it had happened to see if that could like create some traction to make them go look for it or whatever and so i, th I think it had been my mom or <clears throat> something that emailed one of the local brooklyn papers like the brooklyn post or something and so they had then then once the, the ring was found then they definitely wanted to do a story on it and then it started getting picked up and then the brooklyn bridge construction project put their media person on it because they're like oh this is great press for the construction you know everyone's always complaining about the noise and the racket and the construction and like this is great press that like our construction project just saved, <laughs> saved this ring. idiot's ring you know <laughs> and uh you know and then my you know my brother oh this is another thing i forgot of forgot about you know up to that point um you know my brother and i basically didn't pay ourselves out of the band because it was just the two of us and so we basically just shared the band bank account and if one of us needed money you know we just said like hey i need money for this and you know so the other one would also take the same amount of money out and, you know it was like that was how we kept it fair and so so the, the way that i paid for the ring was i just took the money out of the band bank account and, which was like almost everything that we had at the time and Oops. you know yeah and, and basically told my brother you know ty when you get married like we'll pay you know, we'll give you the same amount of money for a ring <laughs> and so you know i had to call him that night and be like hey you know that the money the, you know every penny that we have i that i drained out of the band bank account is gone now you know because i just dropped it off it's the in the river yeah you know and uh anyway so he was excited that they found it and um so what ended up happening is i ended up flying back to new york because the cbs early show had picked it up to do a segment on it so they wanted my fiance and i to come on and meet with the construction worker that found it and like have this little reunion meeting and talk about it all and whatever so it was, it was like this whirlwind of four or five days when i was supposed to just be recording an album in Indiana. And instead I was, you know, flying in and out of New York and, you know, crying and laughing and everything. I don't know. It was, it was a mess, but, um, one of the best and worst days of my life, I guess. All right. So let's kind of talk about how that may have helped your career. That's a lot of publicity being on, you know, one of the 
main network morning shows and you guys already had your band yes you were recording an album were you recording your first album or no um it was our third at the time so a little publicity on a morning show even if it was based upon you wearing super tight jeans and your engagement ring kind of flinging out of them as you were trying to get it and be cool how did that help your band unfortunately not really much yeah they i i tried to you know i was trying to toe that line of like hey give me a shout out but you know but also just you know doing as i was told kind of thing so i i should have in hindsight you know i kind of choked up in the moment i should have said the band name or something while we were on air you know at the time I, I don't think I ended up saying a whole lot. I just kind of sat there and I think they, they mostly talked to my wife and the construction worker. Cause those were the, the two perspectives they were more interested in, I guess. And, you know, I was just kind of the dude that messed up on the side, but um, <laughs> I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I think, I don't think it really added much. I mean, I'm sure that they, I know that, you know, the next year or so when we went on tour, I think that we had a lot of fans that, came up and we're like oh we saw you know my mom loves your guys music now because you know i made her watch you guys on tv or like she saw you on the tv and i told her that i knew your band and whatever but i I don't think that we necessarily had a ton of new fans come out of it so to speak if that makes sense but sure yeah i kind of screwed that up i guess it's one of those no matter what you do you can walk away and say i wish i would have said this why didn't i say that I think that whole weekend is full of regret for me, which is why the story, the story is really fun for everyone else. And with me, it's just every, everything that happened. I kind of, other than the fact that I ended up engaged to my wife, everything else was regretful. <laughs> oh, I don't know. I think there are other ways to look at it. First sure, of all, probably. it's a great story. Yeah. Secondly, just imagine the miracle that this ring fell through the slats on the Brooklyn bridge and it ended up on a construction site before it hit the river yes and then that somebody actually found this yeah. ring and returned it yes yeah and I mean, there was a, it anyway yeah there, it was definitely a miracle and uh you know we we would ne- never look past that and even even when you know one of the cool moments when we talked to the construction worker that found it was he told us how easy it was to find you know was, he was like it was sitting up almost like it was just like presenting waiting. itself you know waiting you know so it really it really felt like a meant to be type of situation in a lot of ways which is neat to experience to me that that story kind of gives you gives me a little hope in humanity when you think about new york i my impression you know being in central wisconsin is you could die on the streets and people are just going to walk right over you. They don't care because there are just yeah. so many people. Right. So it's a yeah. good human interest story. Yes, absolutely. And I, Tony mentioned, and I know he's planning on coming down and recording with you mm-hmm. that in addition to your band, you actually created a, a studio, a recording studio. Yep. Is it in your home? Or- so it, it, it actually was pre-kids. Um, I just, one of the extra bedrooms, I tr- it was my studio room and it was great. And it was me and my dog all day, every day, making music. And that was it. 
And then the kids came, messed everything up. But they um, do that. Yeah, they do. But no, I, 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 um, I kind of knew once we had kids that you know our house is not that big, and you know all the bedrooms are clustered in one little grouping together, and so I wasn't really going to be able to record the way that I wanted to or the times that I wanted to if we were having to deal with a sleeping child or any of that stuff. And excuse me. So once my wife got pregnant, I started looking into some other alternatives and ended up finding this awesome little setup that we have here. So I basically just have this old converted garage now that has become my recording studio. So I've got two rooms, a little kitchenette, a bathroom, and so it's my there's my tracking room with my desk right here where I'm sitting and there's a couch behind me when I, I don't have my vocal panel up but I end up when I'm I end up recording myself a lot so I have all my vocal stuff at my desk and then when I'm recording other people it's in the other room over there uh, which is like our tracking room our live room that um, <clears throat> is all treated and um, has just a bunch of guitars and instruments and all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, the production side, again, I guess maybe going back to me being a little nerdy, um, music production is really fun. And obviously part of it is making and creating music, but there's also a lot of technical parts to it and a lot of boring or nerdy parts of it. And a lot of it is, you know, on the computer and just learning the programs and, um, I was always into that kind of stuff. And I always was a little bit of a control freak. Anytime we would go and record with other people, I was always watching to see what they were doing, make sure they weren't messing up our music and, you know, feeling like I could probably do it better if I just knew what I was doing a little bit more and stuff. And um, so I kind of was always trying to learn that myself and just picking up tips and tricks from other producers that we worked with along the way um, to where I think in 2014, we released an EP, which was our first one that I recorded and produce fully myself. Um, so I played every instrument, et cetera, et cetera. And I actually mixed and mastered that one myself and then kind of figured out through that process that that was one of my weaknesses was that I was definitely better at the front end production side, whereas the mixing and mastering part was definitely something that I could outsource um, to people that were a little bit better. Cause that's kind of a different, it, it kind of gets into a different world. That's even more technical, I'd say um, and the production side of things. And, um, I, I can go a lot more in detail on that if you want, but I'll, I'll leave it there for now. All right. You said you used to, you recorded, you played all of the instruments. How many instruments do you play? Um, it's hard to say exactly. I mean, it, it's kind of like learning a new language. You know, when you meet people that know like 10 or 12 languages, there starts to be a lot of crossover. Mm -hmm. And so they might not know German, but there's so much crossover between French and Spanish and Latin or, you know, whatever else that they could like kind of get by in German or pick it up really quickly. And that's kind of how music is to me. So it's like, I, I'm really well versed mainly in piano and guitar are my two main instruments. And then I've, you know, done a little bit with drums um, and like bass and stuff, but I've, I've played enough guitar that pretty much anything with strings or strumming now I can dabble and make sense of it. So whether that's mandolin or a banjo or, you know, even a violin, I, you know, we grew up playing a little bit of violin when I was really little. Um, so I could do that. And now the nice thing with music technology and recording 
is any instrument that you can think of. They make a software instrument for it. So you can basically play it on a keyboard and then it comes out as whatever instrument you want it to be. And so I've gotten really good at that. I can play a lot of different instruments just on my little MIDI keyboard. Um, so yeah, that, not a specific answer, but that's kind of how it is. No, that's okay. I have a music background too. And you know, like woodwinds, as long as you know the fingering, right? you can play any instrument. So right. I played yep. the, the flute, the bassoon, the alto and the tenor sax. Yes. And exactly. I could also play the oboe and the clarinet because they all had the, the same fingering. It was just a matter of the embouchure for yes. whatever reed you were working with. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So the, yeah, the skill set transfers over. So, but the fact that you have a keyboard that can make it sound like any instrument, it's kind of like cheating, but I, that was the word I was coming up with is <laughs> kind of a cheater. Well, well, you know, what's funny is that I, I fought it for a little while and, um, what I kind of realized was I was really just holding myself back because what I was actually doing was I was making my job harder for myself. And instead of using it as, Hey, here's, here's this immensely creative tool. You know, I was kind of stuck on this idea of, Oh, well, it's not real music or I'm not you know playing a real instrument instead of looking at it as just a tool for creativity. And, um, you know, there's so many sounds now in music, where they sound awesome and they're not even necessarily you can barely even tell what instrument they're you know it's like all the lines are being blurred mm -hmm. and you know there's a lot of electric guitar parts that kind of sound like synthesizer parts and vice versa and you know now there's so much with vocal manipulation and um a lot of that is people chop up different vocal lines and they put them all into a sampler pad and then they play different vocal parts on a keyboard so you're playing different words and notes and you're making this like really cool sounding vocal melody by playing the keyboard, but you're coming up with stuff that you would never come up with if you were actually singing, if that makes sense. You know, so, so now what I've, what I've realized is to, instead of look at it as cheating is to look at it as a creative tool to create something unique and cool. And that really ultimately that's what music is, you know, at some level back in human history, you know, they thought the same thing about guitars and plucking guitars versus, you know, having a bowed string instrument. And um, I remember learning this when I was studying classical music is, you know, that, you know, now it's formally taught that you play classical guitar with long fingernails. Well, at one point in time, before people started doing that, it was like, um, people would complain if you had think if you had a tone like a fingernail tone because it, they was like clicky or you know but what they eventually realized was that you know they made some tweaks to the instrument to where you could still get a nice warm tone out of it and if you you know polished them up and smoothed them out the right way you could get a really warm tone but you had a lot more power and a lot more brightness and a lot more clarity to the notes if you were playing with your nails versus just the the flesh of your finger so to speak and so they realized it was you had two different ways of creating different tones on the guitar. So it actually became a much more expressive instrument as opposed to, you know, cheating by, oh, you're getting extra power by using your fingernails or whatever, you know? And um, so I, I, I don't know. I mean, we've, we've always, music is always evolving uh, just like so many other things in life. And if you're in some ways, yes, it's nice to look back and, you know, stay committed to some of the roots and, you know, you definitely don't want to like, pretend like musical theory doesn't exist or something like that. But at the same point in time, 
if you're way too committed to that and you're never evolving and progressing with it, then you're kind of just getting left behind. That's very interesting, but it truly, it's all about perspective. Yes. And it's all about how you look at things. And I love your analogy, like with the nails for the guitar. And it takes me back to when I was in high school and my piano teacher, her nails were so short because she was a concert pianist Yes, and you don't want any clicking. Yes. And I would sit at the piano and there were days where she made me file my nails at the yep. beginning of my lesson because they were too long. Yep. But it really does change the tone and the feel mm -hmm. just in how you're doing something. Yep. And nothing would change if nobody challenged the boundaries. Exactly. Exactly. So I, I think about, you know, I went from cheating to this just allows me to be more creative. Right. And once you open that door and then you talked about, there are sounds where you can't tell what instrument it is because it's kind of, it's like a number of instruments pulled right. together to make an entirely new and different sound right. that adds all of the pluses from them right into one yeah yeah well, they're, they're, i mean there's even a recording technique you know called stacking or layering where you basically play the same part of the same melody and then you just play it with five or six different instruments and you know it's like you don't even have to play it five or six different times you can literally just copy make a new instrument track on your program your recording program and then just copy down the midi file and it's already playing you know it's, it's like the old me would have been like oh man that's cheating like that's so dumb like you're not even playing the part again but the reality is like no i just worked way faster and came and now like my you, know, you only have so much creative energy that's another thing that i've learned and so the more efficient that you can be the more you allow you know the more you save your creative energy and then you can use that on something bigger absolutely so let me ask you a question kind of going back to my book of being happy in both worlds and how you yes. can have a successful career and a happy family yes as a professional musician who would be out touring and recording once holden made the scene and then arden made the scene mm -hmm. how did you and your wife and then even you and your brother because you and your brother are the band you and your right. wife for the home team. Right. How did you guys juggle it to make it work? Yes. Great question. And it's definitely an ongoing struggle. It is a struggle. Um, but I mean, I've kind of from day one, even, even before kids, um, you know, always had the perspective of, you know, my family is priority number one and, you know, music is a passion and a career but you know and no matter what career i went into that would have been my perspective and that was just a choice that i made very early on in life of how i wanted to that's how i wanted my life to go and not everybody has to make that choice i mean there's definitely a lot of people that have prioritized career over everything else including family and a lot of them are very successful in their career but they've sacrificed probably family relationships and some other things along the way now that might make them happy and that's fine but that wasn't the way that i wanted to do it so even when i got married we 
scaled back on some of the amount of the volume of touring that we were doing. And then when we had kids, it kind of just went even to another lower level. So it kind of just became one of those things where, hey, we used to be willing to travel maybe for this amount of money. Well, now we're only going to travel for this amount of money, you know, or something, you know, and just, you know, we used to be willing to be gone for four weeks at a time. Now we're never going to be gone for more than 10 days at a time or, you know, something like that. Um, And then it also just takes a lot more planning and structure of, okay, you know, we've got this opportunity to go out and play you know, these eight shows over the course of two weeks, will make this much money. Obviously my brother's like, yeah, take it, take it, take, you know, but it's like, I've got to sit down, you know, with my wife and say like, Hey, this is how much we're going to make, you know, what's our childcare situation look like, you know, let's organize that, you know, and she works too. And that's partly to, um, you know, her career is important to her and she's made certain sacrifices there too. Like she went from working full-time to now she works part-time with now that we have kids and so that helps kind of balance out to allow me to still get time to do my stuff that I'm trying to do. And so really it's just a balancing act, juggling act, whatever you want to call it, but it's just constant communication and constant working through the tension of, you know, here's the opportunity, you know, here's how much money we can make. And then here's how long we'll be gone. Here's the amount of time, stress, everything else that'll put on the family side of things. Is it worth doing? Yes or no, go kind of thing. And, um, so that's kind of been it. So I, I don't know if that, if, that if did you have any thoughts, you know, from there, I, I can elaborate a little more, but you know, no, I, and it's really cool that, um, you guys can work to that point. Do you think that your ability to do that analysis and that I look at it as a cost benefit analysis. Sure, and right. The cost isn't just monetary. It's right. all of the, the other stuff. Right. And the fact that Ty doesn't have kids at this point, so he doesn't under, necessarily understand that pull or that component. Right. Do you ever sit back and think how fortunate you are that you're basically in business in the Icarus account with your brother and not just a brother, but your twin brother that you're kind of like this. Oh, hundred percent. Yeah. And, and he's sacrificed a lot, you know, to allow me to have the family life that I want to have. Absolutely. Um, and he brings that up all the time for sure. But, you know, but okay. But that's something you know, that over your head, but yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, you know, but the nice thing is, you know, I think I've been pretty upfront about the way that I wanted my family life to go. And, you know, we've also tried to, you know, we, we understand there's push and pull on both sides. And, you know, we've tried to navigate that as cleanly as possible. And sometimes, you know, he does get mad at me because there's some shows that he wants to take that we don't end up taking, you know, whatever we, we deal with that when that happens. Um, and then I try and do my best to, you know, when I know that it's something that, Hey, this is a really good opportunity, either publicity wise or career wise or financial or whatever, you know, making sure that my wife knows like, Hey, this is, this is one that we really need to find a way to make it work. Um, so it goes both ways there, you know, as we've gotten further down this path, especially with kids, I mean, that's been a little more recent, you know, in the last three and a half years, um, 
I've started being a little more upfront with some of our clients or buyers or venues, you know, whatever you want to call it, where I'll let them know if, if I know that's going to be a hard date for me to do because of family stuff, I'll kind of let them know early on, like, Hey, there's a potential that I can't do this. Would you be interested in having Ty come play solo or Ty with, we've got a couple other music friends that could maybe one of them could come with Ty and do, you know, they would still, it would, so it'd still feel like an acoustic duo. It just wouldn't be me and Ty. It would be Ty and someone else, but you know, you're still, he's still playing Icarus count songs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and then ironically, we've actually had a couple of times where I've done that and gone and played a show without Ty when he's, when he was on his honeymoon and some other stuff. So, you know, we've learned to navigate that a little bit. And part of that is just communicating really well with our clients um, and making sure that they would be on board with that. And, um, you know, moving forward, I think we're both going to potentially release some solo music projects that would then help to open those avenues up as well to where, because that's, you know, that's what we're realizing is that as we come into adulthood, we're both going to have family situations that pull us in a lot of different directions, you know, and it's way more complicated than just I'm married, you're married, but we're still brothers. We're still in a band again. You know, it just, it gets a lot more complicated. And um, so to kind of allow us to each have the commitment level to the Icarus account that we have, but then also allow each of us avenues individually to be able to still pursue musical endeavors without the other one, um, I think is going to be a key moving forward just so that, we don't have that bitterness building up. They're like, well, you didn't let me do this show. And like, I didn't make this money because you didn't want to go because of your kids or whatever. And, and that allows us to also, you know, like for Ty to have a healthier relationship as an uncle, um, you know, with my kids, cause he's not mad at my kids for like ruining his career or something like that, you know? And Sounds like you guys are doing a great job of communicating, but also balancing expectations trying I, th I think it's easier it sounds better talking about it now than i think it's always executed hindsight person. hindsight is great perspective yes but that's, yes. this is this is how we attempt to do it i don't know if this is always how we executed the plan but so i know that you have another commitment yes and it's been wonderful chatting with you i have one final question for you okay. if you could snap your fingers and change one thing in the world today what would it be? No work required on your end mm. other than snapping your fingers. Man, that's a great question. I, um, without thinking about it too much, <laughs> whatever came to your gut first. Yeah. Well, so the one, um, the, for me, it would be clean water. And I think I've tried to, one of the things that's always been important to me in life is, is giving, um, and giving back and, you know, just even just growing up in America in general is even if you're a poor person in America, you're pretty wealthy by the rest of the world's standards. And I remember learning that, you know, several different times growing up from, you know, different as, you know, my parents or myself did different trips to other countries and things like that. And as I kind of researched that a little bit more, um, and just the health standards that we have here and the wealth standards that we have here. Um, one of the things that I learned is that there's still so many people in the world that don't have access to clean drinking water. And there's so many really like things that we would consider very basic and easily solvable health problems. Um, other people in the world have those problems simply because they don't have access to clean drinking water. So 
um, my wife and I, I don't think I've ever talked about this publicly, but you know, one thing that we do in our personal life is, you know, we try to give a certain amount of money every month of what we make. And we specifically give that to a organization called, um, charity water. And I, it started cause I read a book. It's called thirst. I believe it's been a couple of years since I've read it. So I may have been wrong on the title. I think it's called thirst. And the guy that started Charity Water wrote the book and it was just amazing. And I'd already known about the clean water problem before that, um, but just hearing it from his perspective and getting some more of the numbers. And then his story itself was just super cool. The way that he transitioned from basically being like a nightclub party planner to then <laughs> starting like the biggest charity organization in the world. Um, and they have, you know, the, the reason why we donate to them um, is because they have a really um what's the word i'm looking for a really uh transparent giving um setup to where they, they basically have one set of like donors that run help to run the company so like all the money that it takes to actually run like staff salaries and all that kind of stuff is from one set of donors where they know that like hey this is what i'm paying for is for this company to be run and then anyone that actually donates to charity water, a hundred percent of that money goes to walk to charity and to building wells. And That's impressive. Money. Right. Which is really impressive, you know, cause a lot of charities, it's like, when you actually look up the numbers, it's like, 50 it's not a charity given is what's actually going to the charity, you know? And so that was something to me that was like, really like I, I had wanted to give for a long time, but I was always nervous about it because I was like, well, what if, like, what if I'm just giving to this, for this person to pat, you know, you hear all these stories about, you know, these mega church pastors that have these like $20 million compound houses and, yep. you know, all that stuff. And I'm like, I don't want to give to that. <laughs> you know, it's like, I want to give to people that need it. And, and so I was really impressed by that. And just really, that was comforting to me to know that like, Hey, if I'm giving any money that I'm giving to this is going to, to clean water projects throughout the world um but it just it's a problem that we don't really have in america but it's a major world problem and um that is what i would change if i could change something that's awesome give everyone clean water well ty i ty sorry trey <laughs> if i had a dollar for every time that had happened in my well life. you know what and i do it to my kids all the time and they don't even start with the same letter so <laughs> I certainly appreciate your time and where could people find you if they want to find you? Yeah. So, um, for the band, you can just go to the If you're a streaming music person, Apple music or Spotify, you can just look up the Icarus account. So that's the T H E space new word, Icarus I C A R U S. And then another new word account A C C O U N T um you can follow me on instagram it's at trey turner band that's t-r-e-y-t-u-r-n-e-r-b-a-n-d like a rock band um unfortunately that'll soon be changing actually probably it'll be it'll it'll soon be trevor madison music i'm um my solo project is going to be based around my full name with my middle name it'll be trevor madison so i don't know i don't know how quickly you release these podcasts but i'll, I'll actually be announcing that in the next month probably so at Trevor Madison music will be the new social media handle that I'm using on Instagram and all that stuff. And you'll be able to find me there. So this will probably be out before you do that, or it depends okay. on how quickly Tony gets it turned around. Okay. Sounds good. So I'm Sarah Rafi. 
If you enjoyed what you heard today, click subscribe or check out You and Your Life and have a great life and live it on your terms. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Trey. Yep. Thanks, Sarah.